All right, welcome back to Career Corner. I am your host, Jonathan Mars. Today's Career Corner episode is very special. It is with Doina Harris, the Chief Product Officer at Simon Data. Doina has served as a strategic and transformative leader in technology and advertising. She has lived and worked in the United States and Europe for companies such as Solomon Smith Barney, McKinsey, Google, and AppNexus. She is originally from Romania and received her bachelor's and MBA from Harvard University. In my conversation with Doina, we discuss how Simon Data has managed to stay connected during COVID-19 and how she's personally adapted her leadership style, how she uses the Eisenhower matrix to prioritize her time, the benefits of conducting a worst case scenario exercise, her early days growing up in communist Romania and the impact her grandfather had on her, the difference between a sponsor and a mentor, and why you should treat your career as a value investor versus a hedge fund manager, and much, much more. I could go on for another two minutes just getting into all the things we discussed. Doina is truly an amazing person and has had a huge impact on me personally. Enjoy this interesting and insightful conversation with Doina Harris. Doina Harris, welcome to Career Corner. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Really pleased to be here, finally. So Doina, I'd love to start with what you're doing today and your your role at Simon Data. Can you talk a little bit about what Simon does and, and your role there? So I joined Simon Data um, on this date last year. Um, I'm Simon Data Chief Product Officer. So I run a product, but I'm also responsible for the current book of accounts and finance and pricing. I know this sounds like a little bit like a wide scope for a CPO, but I feel really, really passionate about um, drawing the thread between what you build, why you build it, the value that brings customers, and the financial outcomes for the company. Uh, Simon is a customer data platform. So we enable marketers uh, to actually really understand the customers and use their first-party customer data to enable multi-channel journeys. So become relevant to who the customers are and really enable them at scale to uh, listen, think, and speak to the customers. In a way, we're trying to humanize uh, marketing technology and bring it back to basics using pretty complex technology, but it's as simple as um, having marketers with a huge amount of customers and scale to be able to listen, think, and speak. Got it. That is a, a wide scope that you don't always see in one one role, but knowing you doesn't surprise me at all. Is is there, I'm sure there's not a typical day, but do you have an approach to juggling those, those different functions? I try to have an approach. Otherwise, um, I think you get drawn by what's uh, what's urgent and not what's important, right? And the, the base of my approach is really, really having clear mental map about what's what's important and urgent and then what is important so you can um, prioritize all the balls that you're juggling. It, it sounds like a little bit boring to, to talk about a two-by-two two matrix, but I do think that especially when you have a wide scope, that's relevant. So beginning of every week, I try to zoom out and spend some time before I go into my 10, 15 meetings um, every day to be very proactive about what I need to accomplish. 
Um, some people call this the Eisenhower matrix, um, but again, uh, really important to figure out what's important versus not important, what's urgent versus not urgent, and not get dragged into things that are urgent, but but just not important for the company. agree with the premise. You, you have to be intentional about what you want to get done for that day. I'm sure, especially for you, it gets thrown off. But I think the old saying is like for every minute of planning, you save 10 minutes of execution. I, I, I can't say that I'm always successful, right? And, and this is something that everyone needs to be aware of when you try to plan, right? You try to plan, uh, you then have to, to roll a little bit with the punches. Um, but I think keeping a high level direction for what you're trying to do in a quarter, in a week, and how you get there is, is critical. Right. So we're, we're sitting here and we're still in the throes of, of COVID. So I did want to talk to talk about how to play bridge and relate that to how Simon has stayed connected remote. And I, I think, if I recall correctly, you all had a really good approach and were sort of ahead of the curve in terms of how you were going to handle COVID. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you're all staying connected? Uh, of course. Um, I'll, I'll talk about the bridge session, which actually... Um, I don't think it was a success, but it was a good attempt. So first of all, we we I think we enter COVID um, assignment with a little bit of an advantage. Uh, 40% of the company and a significant portion of our engineering team, including our CTO, have always been remote. Our CTO is in Austin and a uh, majority of our engineering uh, team is all over the United States and actually Canada. So we have... You know, the company uh, before I joined even has been amazingly good at creating um, connections for the entire company, considering the fact that so many, so many of us were remote. We used to do um, in-person quarterly on-sites. So everyone actually gets to know each other. But we, we even before COVID, we had really, really good kind of, um, I would just call it, behaviors around making sure that remote colleagues felt always included. So our engineers actually do code reviews remote, uh, which is if you're an engineer, you can imagine that you almost can't imagine how you do it. And everything um, when engineering, for example, used to do all hands, everyone joined from the laptop. So you didn't have a group of people in a room. So I think when COVID hit, we took that and we actually um, ask um, a few of our engineers to write best practices for the rest of the company. And what we did in addition to, again, meeting etiquette and, and some of the, the things that were already in place is we really tried to keep human and personal connections as we went uh, through COVID. We ran everything from a bridge, learn how to play bridge session, to uh, game nights, to watching movies together to just simple um, simple stand-ups um, at the beginning of each day for, for multiple teams, to having drinks together. Again, I think um, at some point we're all too much on Zoom, so you have to balance that a little bit with people needing to, to take a break and do personal things. Uh, but one recent example that, that two of our, um, like a product person and one of our CS um, analysts did, uh, which was amazing, it was a pet Halloween costume contest. And I know this sounds, um, you know, quite cheesy, but you basically dress your pet if you have one in a costume. If you're me, I dress my, one of my kids as a pet. Um, but it's amazing <laughs> how this, uh, yeah, I, I dress my little girl as a, 
as a tiger pet. Um, I enter her in the context as well, but not as a as an official nomination. But but things like this, which are um, they they come from the ground up. The company enables them, right? But there are ideas that the different groups um, in the company who are passionate about different things do. I think may, may, they just make a huge difference. Another example was, um, you know, we have lots of people who are passionate about cooking. And one of them uh, ran two cooking classes where people go together and cook together. Um, my Let's Learn How to Play Bridge was a good attempt. Um, at the end of the one-hour session where I tried to cram the entire history of the bridge and all the rules, uh, one of the engineers said, I didn't understand anything because I was not clear, honestly, but it's intriguing. <laughs> so I consider that uh, a slight success. But I do, I do think that one of the questions that keeps me up at night as a leader is, how do you keep um, the culture of a company, especially a company like Simon, who has a very specific um, worm and and uh, you know a culture that's very very it's very much about people working together and and connecting. How do you keep that going in a remote environment? where we hired 25 new people who've never seen each other or the other people in person. So this is something that we're trying to enable and, and watching very, very carefully. Yeah, it, it's going to be real interesting how this plays out because a lot of companies don't have plans to come back until the middle of next year in certain parts of the country. How, how have you personally adjusted to covid because I know that you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're very much a leader who walks the halls and and shakes hands and builds yeah. relationships both within your team and outside of it. So I, I have to imagine it's been difficult for you. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely been difficult. Like, like you said, um, before COVID, right, in every role I had, I really, really... Um, save time and investing time in having just a coffee chat, right? Walking by someone's desk, introducing myself, um, sitting down and using a little bit of serendipity, right? To connect with people. And the adjustment of scheduling a Zoom call, like a deliberate Zoom call to sit down has been hard, right? I actually, uh, in many, many ways, I had to flex my leadership style and I would say I, I would say it's definitely difficult at any stage to, to flex something that, that's very intuitive to you. And I've done it, I've done it, um, I've done multiple iterations in the first months. I think I now found my my feet in a again schedule a zoom, much more deliberate motions. Um, it feels different and it still feels a little bit foreign to me. But I got into the rhythm when I over-communicate, that's one. The second one is uh, with everyone in my team, I do my best to have a monthly or a bi-quarterly check-in. Every new person, I have a formal introduction and also talking about the company strategy, right? So as much as I, I prefer the fluidity of walking, <laughs> walking down the floor, I now I put structures in place that, that allow me to get a similar result. Um, I'm saying similar because it's still, it doesn't feel the same and it's, it's not fully the same. Right. Thank you for sharing that. So, so that's 
present day, you, I mentioned you're in the U.S. right now. That has not always been the case. You've you've lived in London. You're, you're from Eastern Europe. Do you, can we go back to your childhood and and sort of where you grew up? And were there any influential yeah. moments growing I- up or early mentors? Absolutely. Um, though I would say that, that that's a long, long time ago, Jonathan. Um, so, I mean, I, I grew up in communist Romania. I was 14 when, when communists fell. So I had an interesting, definitely an interesting childhood. Um, I think an influential figure in my, in my early days was my grandfather. Um, my father was actually a diplomat. Uh, he was posted abroad. Uh, during communists, you couldn't you couldn't take your child with you because if you had your child and your passport, there is a high chance that you defect. So children had to stay back. So my grandparents actually raised me, and my my grandfather is um, had a fascinating life. He um, he was a very poor farmer, got conscripted in the army, fought against the Soviets, got captured by the Soviets, ended up in a in a Soviet prisoner camp, um, ended up by believing in Marx. And and the the idea that um, you know capital should be distributed in a in a different way, so uh, went back, fought against the Germans, learned how to read and write in twenty five, and he was one of those people who convinced uh, farmers to put the land together at the beginning of communism, right? So um, amazingly charismatic and actually a great leader, and the 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 best the best thing where he really really pushed me from very early on, um, when I was a little bit tentative, was to just accept failure in many, many ways. Um, I was at some point afraid to try new sports. Uh, I was really, really um, focused on getting uh, A's uh, as a child, not sure why exactly. And he was the one who pushed me to try to do new things and picked me up when I failed in a, in a very in a very clear, loving, um, but memorable way, right? And I do think part of my, um, my my willingness to, again, learn from failure, but not, not let it define me, comes from those very, very early days. Um, now, there, there, there are many, many other mentors and interesting, um, interesting people while I was growing up in Romania, but that's the one that, that I think it's worth highlighting. Yeah. You, you know, my daughter's in first, it makes me think of my daughter right now. She's in first grade and I can see that she, she wants it to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, she wants to just start over and, and which is, which is good in a lot of ways, but I, I definitely am trying to focus her a little bit more on it's okay to fail. Just keep pushing and trying and working hard. Does that, but uh, when my daughter does exactly the same thing that I was trying to explain to her agile software development and iterations. Um, but she does exactly the same thing. It's like one small mistake when she writes something and the entire thing goes. Right, right. Your grandfather sounds amazing. When when did you leave Romania? So Where I, did I you left, go? Yeah, no, I left. I left relatively late. I was. Um, I never planned to leave the country. Right. I was deeply embedded. Um, never thought about about uh, moving away from my family. I had the same friends since I was six. Um, but I started university 
in Romania, and I found it um, in a way lacking. Right? I mean, you you um, it, it was very close after the fall of communism. You still had um, some of the transitions between the old type of professors, a new type of professors, and I I got relatively frustrated about the the kind of my my ideal views about student life and what you can learn and and what I was actually learning. And then literally to serendipity, I had a family friend who who went to Harvard who basically asked me um, asked me to apply, at which my reaction was like, I will never get in. And then he continued to push. He's like, what, what, is the, uh, what happens if you don't get in? What about just applying? Why not? Right? And this is actually something I tell all my, my female mentees, right? It's like a little bit of a change in orientation from why try something or why, why aim for something that you're not going to get um, versus an orientation towards a why not, right? What, what happens if you fail? So I, I applied and I applied kind of half-heartedly. I, I remember um, taking my SAT two while with my parents on a trip to Budapest and my SAT one after a long night of playing bridge. So I was definitely not taking, um, <laughs> taking it seriously. Um, but then I got in. And uh, to my shock and my parents' shock and everyone's shock, honestly. And I still remember a moment when I was like, I can't leave, right? And, and then my parents convinced me, my friends convinced me to give it a try. And it was, it was hard, right? Like I, my, I spoke textbook English, did not get any jokes in English, which, which is an issue when you're sitting in the cafeteria and everyone around you is laughing and you have no idea why they're laughing. Um, but actually stretching myself and understanding, a, immersing myself in a new culture um, was one of the best things I've done, right? And, and I think the experience of moving countries and, and changing cultural context is actually what, what made me a significantly more flexible leader. Uh, so I've done that for, I've done that for three years. I then stayed and worked on Wall Street and I can go, I have lots of interesting stories from that part of my career. But then as, as you mentioned, I went back to Europe, right? So I was, I was in London and Paris for 12 years. And then again, moved back to the US. I, I like to joke that every 10 years, I like to change continents, that hopefully this is the last change. But again, that, that immersion in multiple cultural contexts and historical contexts, right? Which is what happens when you, when you change countries, has been really, really um, useful, right? It, it just makes your, uh, it, it, it makes you, um, again, more flexible and less, less focus on like, less like having a confirmation bias, right? Because you can stretch and listen to different cultural signals. Yeah. There's a couple things I want to comment on and, and ask you about. I, I do think that the, the worst case scenario exercise is, is really helpful. So you, you described it as sort of why not. And I also think it's, it's telling that sometimes we need someone to believe in us, even when we don't believe myself, but a lot of times I, I find this with myself, you can get in your own head and sort of build out this scenario that probably won't happen. But if you actually sit down and think through or write down, what is the worst thing that could happen, right? In your case, go to Harvard. Well, the worst thing that could happen is they, they say no and don't let you in. And yeah. that might be disappointing, but you'd get over it. 
No, I mean, I, I, I really, really think, and again, it, it took me time to, um, it took me time to, to just really completely change my orientation. And it took, it took a few really solid sponsors I had in my career. But I do think that usually when you take a step back, right? Um, and let, let, let's take a scenario. Let's assume, um, let's assume you're asked to take over a function that you haven't done before, right? And as you know, that happened to me at UpNexus multiple times. If you actually take a step back and, and really think carefully through conditions of success, right? Like, what do I need to believe in to believe that I actually have a chance to succeed? But you also think through what's going to be the worst that's going to happen. I mean, the, the worst that's going to happen if you take a, a, over a new function that you haven't necessarily done before is you're going to learn a lot and you might fail. Is failure that scary in the moment of your career and life? Or is failure, you know, the, 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 does a failure have such a high cost, right? And sometimes, again, I, I you know, I, I'm the first one to admit that sometimes you can say, yes, the cost is too high. I'm not going to take the risk. But most of the time, if you actually ask that question, you will orient yourself to taking risks in a different way. And I'm, I'm a big, big proponent of uh, enlarging your aperture as a leader via taking risks and doing things that you haven't done before, right? Yeah. And I think in your case, if I recall correctly, I mean, you you viewed your life as being in Romania the, the whole time. Some some decisions, I think, changed the entire trajectory of, of one's life in, yeah. in a really good way. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, again, it's just, just to put things in context, I've never, never thought I'm going to leave the country. Even after I went to Harvard, I was, I was planning to go back. And then I had an offer from uh, investment bank on Wall Street, an offer from a Romanian bank, Romanian commercial bank in Bucharest. And it was clear to me that the learning would be very different, right? Um, so I, I decided to, to go on Wall Street, but still with the idea of going back. I was like, I'm going to do this for two years and then I'm, I'm going back. Um, and then I met my husband, who is American, and I was still planning to go back. And at some point, there was a moment when I was like, actually, this is, I have to accept a new trajectory, right? So I've learned, I've learned, um, I think, both in my life trajectory and also my career, you know, the importance of serendipity, right? You need to have a plan, you need to have a North Star, but then you really need to be honest with yourself when, um, when you get clear signals that, that that needs to change and you need, you need to adapt and adjust to the new conditions. I mean, in a very similar way, um, I thought I'm going to spend my career in finance. Um, and then I ended up, um, again, a little bit of serendipity. I, I got headhunted uh, to, to actually for a role at Google after my two years in consulting, after my MBA. And um, I went to the interview, fell in love with the people. And it's, it's, it's clear that I just, I, I, love, I love the sector, right? I love the space. I love the sector. I love how technology can improve and change lives as long as it's applied responsibly. Um, but 20 years ago, I was convinced I'm going to be in finance for the rest of my career. So you, you, you can see how plans do indeed change. Yeah. And I wanted to talk and feel free to fact check this. And if I'm wrong, we can, we can just move on. But I, I believe growing up, you were interested in animation and, and yet you studied economics at Harvard and as you said eventually went and got your MBA is that is that true and what led yeah. to that shift or interest in economics 
No, it's it's true. And you know what? Like I'm still interested in animation. And when I retire from tech, um, I I really I really want to to direct a short animated um short animated movie, and hopefully by then the cost of doing that will go down significantly. No, so I I actually um I love I love drawing and I love animation as as a genre. I've always done, I still do. Um I went to computer science high school to actually, uh, because I wanted to do um, animation. And I discovered that I'm actually really mediocre at coding. I'm also mediocre at drawing, by the way. And I have to admit that. So um, you kind of look at, I'm mediocre at two things that are critical to be a, to be a good animator. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something I can, I can be good at. Um, and economics seems something like something I like. I like math. Uh, seems something that I can actually be really good at. Um, you know, in retrospect, I think it's an interesting question. It's like if you're not the best at something, does it still make sense to do it? And honestly, maybe, maybe, um, maybe with my current kind of confidence and risk-taking appetite, makeup, I would have made a different decision. Um, but really happy with the decision I made. I mean, I still, I still paint in the evenings. Um, and we'll see if in 10 years I, I managed to actually direct my animated short. What kind of painting do you do? I do, I do mostly abstract. Um, I do it these days also as a way to, to disconnect and as a way to, you know, it's, it's almost like I think we all these days need a way to gain balance and, and that. That's my way away from uh, being a CPO or mommy to regain a little bit of a little bit of balance every day. Right. So, so you go to Harvard, you study economics, and, and as you said, you you went to Wall Street where you were at Solomon Smith Barney. When did you decide that this this is not going to be what I want to do, and why? I mean, it it, it took me about a year and a half. Um, the the first the first months in a in an investment bank you just try to keep up um, try to deal with the sleep deprivation and and learn as much as you can. But it became clear to me that um, again after about a year or year and a half that I'm much more interested in what the companies are doing, why they're doing the strategy, even their operations versus simply on how they're financing those operations. And as exciting as M&A deals are, I just, it, it didn't, again, it didn't, it, it didn't capture my attention beyond the, you know, get a deal done, be really good at what you do. And I mean, I still clearly remember um, we're doing something for The Gap. It was 1.30 a.m., which is early for investment banking. Mm-hmm. And I was still reading, I was reading the strategic statements um, versus actually just delving into their, into their numbers. So I I, um, I decided that I want to actually do strategy, and then it took me it took me an MBA and two years at McKinsey to to pivot away from hardcore finance, and and I ended up doing strategy uh, for Google. Was it McKinsey that got you over to London, or was it yeah. Google, or did you go through? No, it was, um, I mean, it was interesting. It was like I would not say it was McKinsey who got me to London. I would say it was. Me and my husband deciding that we want to work um, to work somewhere in Europe for a while, and again in a very similar way, um, 
but similar to, to me coming to Harvard and saying, I'm going back. <laughs> mm-hmm. We basically said, Let, let's go to London, let's explore Europe. And then in three years, we'll, we'll come back to the US. And we stayed there for about 12 years. So you, you can talk again about serendipity and planning and decisions that, that change. So I don't know if you remember this, but I went to your house once in London and okay, you're such Joe. a great you're such a great mother. And I remember your kids were coming down the stairs. As we, it was literally like Mary Poppins, uh, these cute little kids coming down the stairs. But the one thing you and your husband, and I've only, I think I met him briefly that day, but you seem like a really good team and you're both by all societal metrics are very successful and very senior in your, in your companies. And you, how do you two balance that and support each other in, in your careers and make those decisions of, Hey, we're going to, let's go to Europe for a certain amount of years. No, I mean, listen, I, I, I'm the first one to say that I would not have been able to do what I'm doing without my husband being amazingly supportive. Right. And, you know, there, there, there are great things coming with being a dual career couple, but in terms of how you manage a household, how you manage being a parent, it has to be, it's a juggle, right? And it, it puts pressure on both members of the couple. And I think what, what we've done, so first of all, I mean, I, I, I would highlight three things. The, the first one is we were really, really clear from the beginning on our career aspirations and family aspirations. So very early on, um, he very early on we had a conversation on we're both going to have careers, and we're both willing to make trade-offs for the other ones at the right time. The second one is just execution, right? Is like we um, we executed that commitment. It's not always easy, right? There, there's tactical juggling of who gets to go on that trip, right? Like I have to go to New York. He has to go to Netherlands which trip is more important, right? And, and which trip is more flexible? And the third one is um, just flexibility and, and accepting that you're not going to be perfect, right? And letting go a little bit about societal pressures that are put on you. And I mean, I have to admit that, that society puts much more pressure on mothers and fathers. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, my husband has the same aspirations, right? He wants to put the kids to bed. He wants to be there when there's a birthday. He wants to be there when there's, uh, you know, my, my son plays in his first concert, the cello, which didn't happen because of COVID, but, you know, maybe that's better because uh, <laughs> the cello playing uh, in, in third grade was just not not that great, honestly. Um, but I think I think just accepting, like, beyond just aligning on principles about how you're going to run the family and executing really well and just also part of executing just get support right and and that's what we did but it's also just accepting that you're going to miss some things you're going to fail some things right um i don't know if you remember but there's one year when i was running the global atb pnl in the us from london and i was in the states i think for 90 days out of the year so I missed plenty, um, and 
you know, I had to tell, I still remember my son one day being like, are you coming to my Christmas concert? And I was like, no, I'm actually in New York. And then he went through, through kind of a long speech, very articulate speech about how all his, his friends' mummies do not travel like I do, right? And that's, that's heartbreaking. And it's very, very hard to answer as a mother. But at the same time, as long as you accept that this, you have to take some hits around this. Um, I think it works out. The the other thing I would say as a mother is I've always I've always been very open with my kids about my work. Um I don't know if you remember but I I, I brought my kids to work many many times. Mm-hmm. I talked to kids about my work. Um in a way working from home that they brought it very close together. My my son now uh talks about revenues and Salesforce and Adobe which is <laughs> very funny. Um but I, I always um, try as much as possible to bring them in on why I'm passionate about my career. And recently, actually, my son went on the internet and found a few uh, videos of me speaking, got, listened to all of them, and got amazingly excited um, excited about it, which was so, so great to see, basically. Yeah, and we should probably baseline. How, how old are your kids right now? So hard to believe. Uh, but they're turning 10 and 7. No way. That's I know. I know. And my, my son is uh, like almost as tall as I am. My my daughter is, is, again, it's just, I mean, it's amazing how fast they've grown. Um, and I'm sure you remember them as little little pixies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, lost, they lost a British accent completely. They're, they're now fully, fully American accent, which is funny to watch, actually. I did. I did want to ask you about that uh, if they still had it. You know, after twenty years, I still have my Eastern European accent. <laughs> well, I think one of my kids is going to have a Southern accent, and the other one, who was born in New York, is not going to have it. So that we have a little of that. So, Doina, back to your career. So you start in Wall Street. You realize it sounds like you're more interested in the actual businesses and how they run and strategy. You go to McKinsey, and then. And then you you end up at at Google for for eight years doing strategy and partnership. I'd love to get your take on your experiences there while you were there, and then also get your point of view on Google right now. As as you probably know, the U.S. government has filed suit with them. A lot of the tech companies right now are facing pressure from governments around the world. But let's let's start with sort of your experience there and what you did and learned. And then given some distance since you were there and all the local current events that are happening here in the U.S. and, and outside, what, what's your take on them now? Yeah, you, you, ask, you ask easy questions, right? Uh, competition, <laughs> Google and Facebook. Now, I mean, listen, I, I joined Google again. I was um, really love, love the team. Um, felt was really really interesting in the company. I joined a strategy team, and I was I was kind of always planning to to move to a smaller place. Um, the fact that I stayed for eight years just it's it's a testimony about how much I've enjoyed the company. Every time when I, when I plateaued a little bit in a role, um, I was pushed or given a different challenge in a different area with different um, like d- different contexts, right? So. Every every two years or so, I change roles. Um, I actually spent my first year at Google in a 
in a partnership role. So, so managing AdWords resellers and, and closing a few deals in that area, which, which gave me a test of, taste of, of uh, a pure commercial role, right? Where you have a quota and, and you really focus on revenues. I then decided to go back to strategy and I did about four, let's call it three, two to three years in a, in a global, first European and then global strategy role. And that was, uh, that was actually a fascinating way to have, to be around the table when strategic decisions and big decisions get made, right? Obviously you're a project manager, you're not a decision maker, but you, you get, you get um, exposed to that and you get exposed to, to different leadership styles. So the learning curve for me, it was really high. Um, and then I spent the last, uh, let's call it the third phase of my career at Google, running operation strategy for half of, of EMEA. So Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, and that, that was more the way I describe it as a, a CEO role, right? So you, you manage the, the operations, you manage setting quotas, you manage, um, all the day in and day out, but you also manage the, the kind of strategic direction, right? Where you open offices, uh, how you launch new products, you know, what's a three-year plan. And, and the, the big highlight for me from that, that part of my career was uh, being part of a small team. So that manage the region, so a small cross-function team and working for a senior vice president um, Carlo da Sarao Biondo, who really, really pushed me by giving me space. You know, I talk a little bit about my grandfather and how he always, um, you know, he, he made me much more, much more willing to, to try things and fail. Carlo was very similar from that perspective. He stretched me and gave me uh, projects and scope that was almost uncomfortable, right? It was a tad too big. But that's why I've grown so much, and I'm 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 so grateful. I'm gr- so grateful that he basically sponsored me, right? And and many many times again, when I speak, especially to female leaders, I always always emphasize the importance of having a sponsor because I benefited from one. The last year, at Google was again going back to a partnerships role, so 360 partnerships, trying to to connect and thread all the Google products facing. Um, music um music and movie companies right which with whom google had uh, you know let's call it a frenemy a little bit relationship due to youtube um mainly and uh you're going to ask me i'm sure what about next but um in terms of kind of google and facebook and the current environment it's it's one of those interesting questions where you know i i, I fully fully believe in the need to have smaller companies compete with big companies, right? My current company, uh, we work alongside Salesforce, for example, we, we make them work better, but we also compete with Salesforce. And having the ability in, a, in, an, open, in an open economy to actually do that is I, what I think is going to uh, push the next, next wave of innovation, technology innovation, right? At the same time, I also think that um, the the way, especially the U.S., looks at competition from a price perspective, which, by the way, is different than the the way the European Commission looks at it, makes it uh, makes it harder to argue 
that you need to break some of these larger companies. I mean, I think if you if you want, we can have an hour conversation around this. Yeah. Being, let me let me just say that uh, my experience at Google has been amazing, um, and I honestly do think it's you know it continues to be a really interesting company. Yeah, and I would love to maybe another time talk about the differences between how the U.S. and European Commission view that. I, I think it's a balance too, right? With the internet, and we we know this, and you know this from your time at UpNexus too. It's it's people want stuff for free on the internet, but at some point, there's always a cost, and getting that right and and sort of seeing publishers sort of thread the needle between online advertising dollar revenue models versus subscription models. I think it's getting more in balance than it was five, 10 years ago, or whether it's search. You talked about sp- sponsors. What, can you elaborate on searching for sponsors and why that's important for someone in their career? Yeah, let me let me start actually by um, highlighting the difference between a sponsor and, and a mentor, because that's sometimes people use them um, meaning the same thing and they don't, right? So you know, a mentor coaches you, um, you know, can be helpful in giving you advice. A sponsor is actually someone who uses part of her or his credit um, and taking risks on your career, right? Gives you a, a high-level profile project, taps you on the shoulder for a role. And I do think that um, most people, most really successful leaders um, have a sponsor or had a sponsor at some point. Right. And I think it's it's um, when you're in the majority in a company, it's easier to, to develop a relationship with a sponsor um, just because you think the same and, and you relate easily in an easier way. Now, answering your question directly, um, you don't while you can be deliberate about. You know, really uh, working with someone and and thinking about who can be your sponsor you don't you don't go and ask someone can you be my sponsor right the the way you develop a sponsorship relationship is usually via work and usually via really really good work and and kind of making clear what your potential is if that makes sense yep totally agree doing you you've run really large teams you've worked in multiple industries. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges you faced as a, as a female in general or as a female leader and your take on where, where things are for female leaders today and, and maybe what you're hoping to see moving forward? No, I mean, absolutely. Right. I mean, I do, um, I love numbers and facts. And actually, if you look around the world, just numbers of female CEOs, it's it's pretty depressing, right? The, the numbers haven't moved um, up in the last five to 10 years, especially in technology. And I mean, we can, we can spend hours talking about why. Um, but what I would say is, I mean, I, I, I don't fundamentally, right? I don't think there's a difference in between, you know, how a female or male runs a team, right? Um, there, there are stylistic differences and orientation differences, but fundamentally, you know, 
good leaders are good leaders, right? I do think, though, that um, there's a difference in being in the minority versus being in the majority, right? And there there are lots of studies around the ability, your, your innate ability and appetite for taking risks if you are in the minority, right? If you're the only... Um, if you're the only woman in a management team, that's all males. And I've been, I've been there many, many times. What's your willingness to really take a risk, raise your hand and take a risk. And I do think that that's the somewhere where I am pushing myself and advising all my female mentees to still raise your hand and still take risks because that's how you accelerate advancement of your career, right? No one is, is getting really promoted for achieving something that was easy, right? People get promoted because they, they prove themselves in difficult situations. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and we'll start winding down because I know you're you're busy and we have a hard stop soon. You're, you've always seemed to really welcome feedback and you're really good at giving feedback. Can you talk about some good feedback you've gotten in your career and how you've executed on it and why you welcome it so much, even at this stage in your career? I mean, I, I strongly believe that there's no stage of your career where you're doing everything perfectly. It's just, it's just not possible. Right. So asking people who you're working with closely to be open and, and just give you feedback when you do things less than, than optimal it's something that everyone should do, right? Um, my current CEO, Jason, does this really well, right? Which is, let's let's just make sure we have an open conversation, regardless of your level, on what we can improve, right? And there's always learning that you can do. There's always improvement you can do. Um, so if you ever work for a manager that never asks you for feedback, I'm going to argue that she or he is not a good manager, um, in terms of feedback, it's, it's interesting. It's like I, I think the best feedback I got, which you're going to relate to the situation, was actually from one of my managers at AppNexus, um, Casey, who in my first three months, basically, um, was very, very good at observing and listening and gave me one of the best and most most nuanced feedback I, I got in my career um, and it was it was mainly focused on on um, my desire to move really really fast, and how some people feel when I'm um, basically dragging them, right? Um, and the reason I'm saying it was nuanced is because it was adapted to the situation. Um, it was not black and white, and it was very very thoughtful, right? And this is where I think uh, again I think everyone should 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 just absolutely welcome feedback. But I also think that really good leaders need to continue, need to really um, work on the feedback they give to their to their to people on their team, right? And for that, you need to be very tuned to the fact that as a as a manager, you have the obligation and the responsibility to continue to develop your teams. And feedback is a main is like the main instrument you can use. And you really, really need to, to be able to, to listen, right? Listen and observe. Uh, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, thank you. And, and Jonathan, I... hopefully the feedback I gave you when I was your manager was good. It <laughs> was. It, it, it always was. I, I think it's a form of caring of, 
about someone because it 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 helps them reach their potential. Couple couple final things, Dwayne. I mean, you've delivered a lot of wisdom today. Thank you for that. What's what's the one career insight someone listening to this should should take with them, whether they're early in their career, twenty five, or later in their career, fifty five or sixty? So I think the the one thing I haven't touched on is um, think long term, right? Um, or you know, to, to use a stock analogy, think like a value investor, not like a hedge fund. So I, I I do think lots of people focus on the on the next move, the next promotion, the next raise, and while I think that's a valid approach, the approach I've been advocating is. Like at any moment, have a North Star, think about what you, where you want to get in five years and be willing to take lateral move, moves and, and just more, like less linear moves that just builds better, a better platform for what you want to do in five or 10 years, right? I mean, I, I again, I'm a little bit biased here, but I took lots of lateral moves in my career. I, I it really enlarged my aperture uh, in terms of functions I ran and and geographies and, and size of teams. And I have to admit they're coming in now really, really handy, right? Um, so I would just say really think long-term and, and just be willing to just do, just make some career moves and take some risks that are not focused on the next the next things that's right in front of you. That's really good. Thank you for that. Do I know if someone listens to this and wants to reach out and connect, what's what's the best way for them to do so? I would just say the traditional LinkedIn quick message works really well. Cool. And I'll link to your profile in the show notes. Duana Harris, thank you so much. We didn't get to a lot of stuff because you've just done so much, but maybe we can have a part two someday. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I'm so glad we finally got it done after three years of, of actually talking about it. All right. There you have it. My interview with Doina Harris. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Feel free to reach out to Doina on LinkedIn, which will be in the show notes. Please reach out to me on Twitter or any other means to let me know what you think of the Career Corner podcast. We've got some great interviews coming up that I'm editing right now. If you would be so inclined to help get Career Corner in the hands of others, in the ears of others, actually, please go ahead and give Career Corner a a high rating on whatever podcast distributor you use. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.